Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. Um, this is the audio from a uh, talk on model space practice uh, that we had on uh, September 22nd, 2020. And some of the audio is a little bit quieter than others, but uh, the context is there. It was a great conversation and I uh, hope that you enjoy. All right, so we're at 12.03, so we can go ahead and get started. I think you know, I, again, have no idea what to expect on who's going to show up, how many people are going to show up, what we're going to end up talking about. Um, and, you know, overall, like, I definitely do not pretend or ever have claimed to be an expert on model space practice. So I'm hoping that those of you in the room who have worked in the field, those of you who have written books on the field, um, you know, are writing papers, you're guiding graduate students, and especially the very graduate students who are really engaged deeply in this work will be the ones to speak up. Um, I am recording the call, so if you don't want to be recorded, it's audio only, so you can keep your camera on if you want. Um, you can keep it off, it doesn't matter. Um, you can use the chat feature to ask questions if you don't want your audio recorded, and I'll uh, try my best to moderate that. Um, and if you're able to, um, if you mute yourself when you're not talking, um, then that's probably better for everybody. Um, and I hope, I really hope this conversation flows like I envisioned it, but in case it doesn't, I've prepared some leading questions as a backup. Uh, just know that these come from a US-based perspective and they're inherently biased to my own experience with models. Um, Another reason why people on the Zoom call should probably be asking the questions and pushing the conversation forward instead of me, but um, I do have just a couple simple things, simple rules. Uh, number one is to be nice. Uh, number two is to assume positive intent. Uh, no one on here is trying to have a gotcha moment on anybody else or you shouldn't be. And the third one is if you're gonna be mean, just don't talk. Um, that's it. Fairly simple. Um, I, I wanted to have this conversation uh, to kind of push the thinking forward. And there's been a lot of research on this, um, on this area for several years. So there's no set rules for this. If you want to speak up, you can unmute yourself. If it uh, is easier for you to um, put your hand up, whether it's physically in the camera or use the, uh, use the functions on Zoom to put that in, I can kind of um, moderate it that way. Um, but to get started, um, I'll, I'll get the proverbial ball rolling with the first question. And again, anybody can answer this or take, um, take point. Or if you have another question after this that you want to answer, I'm, I'm happy to have those. Um, so to start off, we look at people like Seedentop who developed sport ed in the early 1990s. Uh, Hellison's work in TPSR was in the 70s, 80s. Uh, TGFU was first published in 1986. So what do you think, and this goes to, for anybody on this call, has one, kept models persistent over the years as research topics, and two, kept them from actually being implemented regularly in the general not saying, not like the exceptional or our students' classrooms, but the general PE classes around the world. I'll go, I'll give it a go. Um, 
It's great to see Mike uh, Metzler on the call and, and David Kirk. And I just want to, before we go anywhere, and you've acknowledged Daryl and, and, and others, I'd like to acknowledge the work that those two individuals amongst others have done in terms of positioning um, pedagogical models or instructional models. I think Mike's book in 2000 was seminal in terms of, you know, bringing Easter King together. Uh, I think David and Mike have challenged each other through, through, through the years in terms of terminology. Um, and I think that's really, really important. I think to me, the work of Joyce and Will um, is, is, needs to be considered very powerfully here in this discussion and the work that they've done um, and later with Kathy Ennis uh, in terms of positioning models. So, you know, I think all the discussions we're having is, have been enabled by those individuals and, and others. Um, so I just kind of wanted to say that um, before we went any further. Um, I guess from my consideration, it's, it's, it's the interest and, and the, I guess it's the, the oh, I guess I'm looking for the ease of access into some of these approaches that, that, that have come through these individuals that have made them, them um, interesting and popular. I know that uh, Dave Bunker and, and Rob Thorpe did that with the undergraduate students at Loughborough University. Uh, and I know this has come through teacher education programs around the world. Um, Georgia State being a great example in, you know, in terms of how that's, you know, that's happened. And, uh, um, you know, so that to me is, is a reason why. So I'll stop talking because there's lots of people here. It's nice to see everybody. Hi. I'll give it a shot. Um, hi, everybody. And my name's Clancy Seymour from Canisius College in Buffalo, New York, just on the uh, border to Canada as well. Risto and I were sharing some thoughts about the weather. Thanks for having me. And it's... Um, a pleasure and honor to, to see a lot of wonderful colleagues. And I certainly echo Ash's um, sentiments as well. I think um, in terms of why uh, we don't see pedagogical models continue to uh, gain traction um, really lends itself to perhaps that research that Kevin and Dr. Lawson have done about that socialization piece, the idea that we have this 18, these 18 years of acculturation and then professional socialization right in the middle, which is four to five years. And then the organizational socialization that kind of competes against it. And I think that's the, that's the interplay that we have to figure out. And, uh, you know, akin to riding a bike or back to what Ashley has written about regarding pedagogical fluency, it's all related. And we have to, we have to um, train our teacher candidates to be able to disrupt and become fluent with these instructional pedagogical models, comfortable enough to be able to, to stand alone and be able to uh, implement and apply them uh, in their own settings, whatever, uh, you know, induction occurs. That's the way I see it. And then in regards to some of the research, I think that the research in pedagogical models continues to gain traction, however, because of its, its overlap with, with the coaching profession. And you're seeing a lot of pedagogical models start to get involved or get uh, used in whether it's coaching or extracurricular activities or after-school activities like Risto has done. Um, you see, for example, TGFU or games-based approaches really gaining traction in the coaching sphere. And I think that's why it, it continues to be uh, popular. I kind of threw it out there, seeing if Kevin will bite on on giving his uh, opinion here. And I 
I said that people are welcome to come in and not actually comment or talk and they can sit like flies on the wall. But since we brought up the socialization issue, I was wondering if you're interested in chime in. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think Clancy said it uh, said it pretty well. Um, Matt Kurtner Smith and some of his doctoral students have done some work on this related to uh, he frames it as as reading pedagogical models as text in understanding that there are different interpretations that one might have and that those interpretations are framed uh, in part at least by socialization experiences both both prior and current. Um, and so I think a, a, a straightforward example of that, that that I saw in some work that I did a few years ago with uh, Barry Gordon in New Zealand um, was we were doing a socialization study looking at how um, in-service teachers in New Zealand received the, um, the TPSR model. Um, and what we found was that for many of them, they felt as if TPSR ran counter to their belief structures related to what physical education should be about, because growing up as children, they had experienced PE that was primarily sport and physical activity based. The, the psychomotor domain was kind of front and center in their ideology. And so getting them to, to accept TPSR involved, I think, two things. First of all, a more nuanced understanding of what TPSR actually was, because contrary to what some teachers think, I don't think that it necessarily reduces physical activity time. Um, but then also for them to expand their understanding of what outcomes in physical education should be to include the affective domain and things like personal and social responsibility. And that's asking people to, to kind of shift, a, you know, a pretty big, a pretty big degree from from where they um, from where from where they are to where uh, you know perhaps they, they they need to be to, in order to embrace that model uh, and I think that that can be a challenge sometimes. Can I jump in real quick? I, I know that I'm the oddball here all the time, but I feel like this question is kind of awkwardly set up. Can anybody here name some other type of pedagogical practice? that has materialized as greatly as pedagogical models in PE that has shifted the ethos. I, I'm, I guess I'm sort of taken aback because we're acting as if these models don't occur in places that they aren't making a difference and they are. They're, they're probably what has been done the most for this transformation. And, and Dylan, I, I wouldn't say that I would, I, I'm arguing that the pedagogic models haven't been implemented well and in different ways um, across a variety of settings. But I've also gone into a lot of schools where physical education looks very similar to how it may have looked decades ago. And I don't see innovation. I don't see contemporary best practice. Uh, I see teachers who are who are very kind of comfortable doing things the way that they have for a long time. And, and I would argue that at least in part, that's a socialization issue as well, because when you dig deeper, there's probably restraints within those environments that prevent them from, from doing different things. So I wasn't trying to paint with too broad of a, a brush. I just wanted to clarify that. Go ahead, Ashley. Yeah, no, it in? wasn't a response to you, um, Kevin. It was just more of a response more broadly because I think that pedagogical models have actually shifted the field better than anything else that we've done here um, that, that I can know of. I walk into places and I see them. But to answer one of the original questions, I think the reason why people resonate with pedagogical models is because uh, who they're created by and who they're created for. Um, for example, sport education uh, sort of mimics a sport season, a league per se, right? Who is going to be more interested than a league than a physical educator who are in leagues their entire lives? Um, with that said, 
there are material circumstances that you know prohibit these things from occurring. Um, but again, I, I really think we should be focusing on the positive things that have happened with models and how they have shifted those practices. Ash, did you, uh, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with Dylan that uh, certainly model-based practice isn't pervasive, and, uh, but it is growing incrementally. Certainly uh, 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 models like sport ed and, uh, and others are in, in some countries predominant ways to teach. Uh, so it's, it's out there. Certainly people are using the models, but um, is it pervasive? No, not yet. Go ahead, David. Um, and I think one of the difficulties that we have is the way that schools set themselves up, particularly um, secondary schools. And you've got these two big institutional coordinates of time and space, the timetable and the spaces in which teaching and learning take place. And if you think about physical education programs, they're programmed around the availability of the gym, the playing fields, the track, and so on. And whilst you've got that kind of arrangement in schools, um, whilst those, those are really powerful, um, and, 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 and it's the prestigious subjects in secondary schools in particular who like this arrangement, the 50 minute period um, and the musical chairs curriculum where you know, every, every 50 minutes or every hour kids change to go somewhere else. But it doesn't, that, that lends itself superbly well to a multi-activity a, a multi sport technique based form of physical education. And in fact, teachers are, are, are almost helpless in that context. They might be able to parachute a single pedagogical model into that setup. They might just manage that. They might be able to manipulate the, 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 um, the facilities and they may be able to get uh, teachers, their colleagues to cooperate with them, but they couldn't put a multi-model, a multi-model program together, only with enormous difficulty because some models need more time than others. Some models need different spaces than others. And so I, I think um, in, in response to Risto's original question, I think the difficulties lie in the way that schools are set up in the first place. And what we haven't been very good at is persuading school leaders and their colleagues that we need to do things differently. And we've actually known this for a long time. You know, back in, in my um, Physical Education Futures book, I, I cited it. Um, uh, um, you know, um, authorities in the 1950s and 1960s in the UK pointing out exactly this, this, this problem. So that, that would be my take on Risto's original question and then the, the various contributions that have come in. I think they all feed in. I think the socialization issue um, very much is, a, is an issue, but, but in a sense, teachers are kind of powerless by themselves to do very much about the way schools are set up. And, and I would add that it's not just uh, the educational policy measures that uh, impose such difficult contexts in physical education programs that make some models impossible to use. Uh, it, it's also, uh, at least in the US, it's our professional association. Our, our, our roles are written uh, in all three domains. They are very ambiguous. And what they result in is an ability for any teacher to teach any way they like and what they like 
and find some place in those standards to haul home. And, and so, um, and, you know, to use an American phrase, it's like a wild, wild west out there. And until that changes, uh, there'll be less and less uh, likelihood that uh, in-service physical education teachers um, will um, read about and use models more. Because right now, anything goes. Thanks, Mike. You want to go, Clancy? Yes, thanks. And, you know, just to add uh, uh, to, to um, what Dr. Metzler mentioned and Dr. Kirk, I think uh, Dr. Kirk's book, about, uh, just recent book about precarity certainly aligns to this as well. You know, these institutional restraints go far beyond just the institution itself, but the structure. And we have challenges right now. Our public education systems, at least from the U.S., are not made to solve some of the issues that are being asked uh, to solve right now. So I think that plays into this question and it bootstraps physical education programs to when, when, when schools are taxed and overburdened, it just makes it even harder to implement. Go ahead, Ash. Yeah, I think one thing we need to appreciate probably, or I, from my perspective, is that models-based practice doesn't exist. So we don't have an approach to school physical education that is models-based. We don't take that as our focus. What we have is a series of pedagogical models, as David says, Mike says, it's fitted into a, an environment. It's, it's put into a, a fairly hostile environment and it's made to work in, in very effective ways. But models-based practice, so taking that as a term, is not, it doesn't, you know, doesn't yet exist anywhere, I'm not, unless I'm missing it. So if we're looking to change physical education and we're looking to take a models-based approach, then we need to look at the ways that we structure school physical education. Um, and David's alluded to this already, you know, in terms of the way the timetable constrains, the way the expectation constrains. Stephen Top talked about teaching the same introductory unit again and again. So teacher education has a responsibility for, for subject knowledge. Um, and we have to start slowly. The reason that one models get one model gets used is because it's it's useful and and, and it's it's easy to learn. The second model becomes, in my experience, a little bit easier, um, and then the third and the fourth. But I, I think we need to acknowledge that. And I think as researchers, um, we also need to take ownership of models there is a hope in the model and there is a hope in a practice, but there is also a reality of a happening in terms of what occurs in that space. And we need to adapt models. Sport education says that it affects extracurricular activity and, and extracurricular development within sport. And I don't think there's been a single paper that's ever seen or proven that it does. So we need to look at what the model is purporting to and what it's trying to achieve. And we need to refine it ourselves. So, you know, those working in that area need to look at the model and, and how it can be adapted um, as teaching gates for understanding has been looked at, et cetera. Go ahead, David. So, so it seems to me that we actually need to be asking some different questions of, of model-based practice in the physical education. Um, picking up on Dylan's point, I actually think we've got some some fabulous um, pedagogical models uh, to work with. Um, and people are developing them all the time. I'm seeing new ones uh, appearing, um, you know, as researchers get busy on things like uh, outdoor adventure education and 
activist approaches and working with socially vulnerable youth. And there's people here who are working on martial arts, for example, as a as a um, as a pedagogical model. So you know, this is rich, rich stuff. But what we have to be doing, and this is pick up, picking up on Ash's um, point, is we're not being good enough at persuading policymakers and school leaders of the real benefits of this kind of rich panoply of physical education. We've been too passive in that respect, and we've been, not been very good at you know working as researchers and those of you who are teachers working together and to provide the evidence that would make our arguments much, much more powerful. So it seems to me that at one level, the questions we need to be asking are all around mobilizing um, the, 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 uh, the research that we've got and maybe conducting new research that shows what physical education can provide. And I saw a number of people when they responded to Risto's question about you know, what's physical education for, I'm certainly persuaded more and more that the health-based rationale is a strong one, although I'm more persuaded by the salutogenic approach to that and pedagogies of effect than the MVPA type side of it, although it's all important. Um, persuading school leaders and policymakers of how physical education is essential, we can't do without it. It's absolutely essential, particularly for young people who are coming to school um, from precarious situations in life where school might be the only place where they're going to get access to these sorts of services. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is making the arguments that we need to change timetables and classrooms in order to, and yeah, okay, so we have to say physical education is exceptional. Although I think there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on in schools or would go on in schools if we didn't have this, um, you know, these 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 structures operating that only really suit the hyper academic subjects. Is there anybody who wants to follow up on that? No, I think I've shut everybody up now. Well, this is uh, this is Gavin, um, and I uh, maybe just want to kind of offer a another perspective. Is one thing we haven't asked is why? What are we doing as peak professionals that is uh, possibly influencing that implementation. You know, um, I, I know that, you know, and maybe we should be asking, well, what is going on with the pre-service teachers who do initiate and use instructional models? Um, you know, I think that that has to be a consideration as well, because, you know, we we all while we all know and agree <clears throat> on policy and changing organizational structures. Um, that's a long term goal goal short term. We can figure out what we need to do as you know, teacher educators to ensure that it does translate into practice in the public schools. Um, and I think perhaps it is, you know, we need to, you know, a lot of times we have a difficult time agreeing on what models are, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, there's, there's a lot of inconsistencies um, across different programs. And then we have to figure out, okay, what's the best way to teach in order to promote that adoption in the public school setting? Go ahead, Mike. Um, now that Gavin has uh, spoken up, um, Gavin, maybe you should 
share with us a little bit about how you promote uh, teachers in your master's program to use instructional models. I happen to know it's very well done. Well, so what we do is our entire grad program is models-based. Um, over the course of the program, uh, we take it very slow. Um, the teachers, I've worked with students over the past uh, decade or so to develop really good examples of what models are. Um, and this includes both planning materials, videos, um, full lessons, and then as soon as they enter our program, our students are immersed in, you know, model-based instruction. Then they go through the process of planning, implementing, and evaluating. And I have to say, our program is like a lot in the U.S. It's 100% online. And, you know, we see these, a lot of our students at future conferences or, um, later after they leave our program and they talk about, hey, we're still implementing, you know, the models we learned in your class. Now, it's usually only three models, um, but it's a very formative process. And I think, you know, we, we, I also try to follow uh, the advice in Mike's book is that we focus on the deductive process of, um, you know, planning, implementing, reflecting, and evaluating what we do. And that was kind of my point is, you know, we really, perhaps we focus on, you know, just talking too much about the models and not enough on the, the whole process of asking questions of deductive um, processes that our students need to really engage in. Um, but that's what we do. And, you know, I mean, of course, there's washout. I'm sure we have students who, you know, go back to doing the same thing that they're that they previously or but previously were doing. But we do have a pretty significant number who will adopt, you know, the um, using certain instructional models in their in their classroom. Um, because we sell, I mean, they figure it out, you know, they say, I was bored with the way I was teaching, or, you know, I figured out that, you know, inquiry teaching is really aligns with my own personal teaching philosophy, um, whatever it is. And a lot of the students who come into our program, unfortunately, may have never heard what an instructional model is. So we really have to start from scratch um, with our students in our graduate program. But again, we, we keep it simple. And I think that's key too, is to not overwhelm students and to really focus on the formative processes of teaching them how to think and plan um, along the way. Yeah, and I think, I think what you're bringing up is interesting because you're talking about it from the master's uh, perspective, which provides us another two years to actually teach that content. Whereas when we're looking at the undergraduate level in the US, we do have very limited time in pedagogy courses that we could teach these models. So even if you teach, whether it's one model or three models, it's not a lot of time for them to do it. And you know, if you don't have a teacher or a master teacher that you're gonna send students to go observe, like how, how does that 
beginning, you know, undergraduate student, pre-service teacher, how do they actually see what a model is and how it looks like? Because it's going to be different in teaching and peer teaching. I could teach 25 of my students and take them through a sport education season through a secondary methods course, but it's very different than actually seeing a teacher do it and having those roles and functions occur with seventh graders, eighth graders, ninth graders. So I think that's one of the issues. And I, I can see, you know, Gavin and your experience having it at the master's level, that's where our students really might like really get into it because they already have that experience and then they take that deep dive. So I, I'm wondering if one of the issues why models-based practice isn't taught as prevalently in U.S. schools, and it isn't taught in some U.S. universities, like, is that the reason because we just don't have enough time in the, in the curriculum? Uh, if I could add on that, you make time for what's important. Simple as that. So if it's not important, you find other things to put ahead of it or to not do models-based practice in any shape uh, or fashion at all. It's a matter of what's important. And to, and to build from what, what Mike just said right there, that, that's actually, I unmuted a second ago and I was gonna add and then I thought better of it. And then Mike add, Mike said pretty much what I was gonna say is that I think in, in large, you know, who sets the curriculum in large part within our, within our PEAT programs? We do. Um, you know, there are some guidelines that we have to follow um, for accreditation and whatnot, but there's enough flexibility within those so that we can do or not do model, uh, uh, pedagogical or instructional models in various different ways. And so ultimately, the decision of what model or models and how much time gets devoted to those models falls upon individual peak faculty members. And we all have, if we're being honest about it, different um, allegiances, different preferences. Um, you know, I, I got into uh, a TPSR um, through some work that I did with uh, Michael Hemphill uh, during his PhD, and I've been really into that ever since. And my undergrad at Springfield College was focused on skill teams approach. So guess which two models I really push within my programming? Those two, because those are the two that, that I believe are important. And, and you could have somebody else come up and make a, an equally convincing argument while, why different models are important. So to some degree, our own socialization as PEAT faculty members influences our selection of models. Yeah, on that one, sorry, David, too slow. Um, I mean, I, funny enough, one of the models I use will be cooperative learning. I mean, there's a big shock and small education and teaching gauge for understanding. Although I'm trying to introduce uh, PSI this year uh, because of lockdown to give them the opportunity to access models through a different so I'm having to learn so it's still a learning process for us to move beyond the comfort zone but teachers don't only learn through peak programs they learn through careers and, and we have to find ways of accessing and making this, this stuff available not behind paywalls not behind you know big long words and fancy vocabulary but you know, in ways that, that teachers can understand. So and that's a real, and that's, that is a way that we can all do this. We can all spend a little bit of time unpacking the things that we do and helping other people to see that. Um, you know, we try to work with our mentors to, to help them to see what models are. We're constrained. And to be honest, we don't do it anywhere near as well as we, I don't want to say could or should. Um, <laughs> you can make a choice from that. Um, but we need to engage in, in many ways with the community that's out there and help them to develop. And sometimes that happens through our 
master's students or doctoral students, sometimes it happens through our own efforts and, and vocabulary. And the work, you know, Rita, you're doing particularly around setting this up um, and, and, and setting up the, the podcast and, that you do and, and everything else is, is a really good step forwards. Um, but to me, we need to write for practitioners, whether they're in university, whether they want to go to university or whether they've been 20 years into their career. Those are the ways we're going to continue to shift the field. Right, David. Um, I think it's really important we don't fall into this um, trap of thinking that our student teachers need to experience every single facet of physical education. I mean, we've had this problem with the multi-activity approach where, you, you know, you've got to be able to do a little bit of everything. Um, I, I just don't think that's a feasible um, suggestion and, and what people are saying about limits on time um, kind of confirms that. So I don't, I don't have any problem with somebody being a specialist in TGFU and sport education, for example, or TPSR and cooperative learning. I mean, what's wrong with that? Why shouldn't we, as long as we can turn out people across institutions who've got different specializations, and also that they've got a, a mindset that, that models-based practice is the way to go, and they're keen to work with other teachers who've got other kinds of expertise in other models. And there are some models that will never suit some teachers. I mean, so I think you have to be pretty specialist to do adventure-based stuff. I know you have to be specialist to do martial arts stuff. If there's a model for dance, you'd also have to be some, you know, so, um, and, and that's the same issue with the, with the content-driven um, approach. So I, I think we must be careful of not, not falling into that idea that everybody's got to have the, the, the breadth of experience. So I'd like to, I'd like to ask, uh, just a curiosity question for me and um, and maybe Ash, uh, I don't know if Anne's on here, but uh, you all wrote that paper in 2020 on between the hope and happening, problematizing the M and the P in model state practice. And in it, one of the main parts was to consider models as an ambition, as an aspiration, and you talk about using it as a verb. Um, so I want to offer the space for you, if you want to, uh, to expand on that a little bit and answer this question that has been kind of going around in my brain of something that I'm grappling with is that should models, in your opinion, have these rigid non-negotiables and if they're missing them, do they cease to be a model? Thanks for that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't think that sport education exists as one thing, that be the fundamental premise. So sport educated, you know, we had a, a long time when we used to say in research methods in a paper that I did sport education or I did cooperative learning. Well, that's, that to me is not possible. And that's the notion of moving to verbing these things and not proper nouning them. It's not a thing, it's, a, it's an idea and an aspiration. There's a huge amount of work that's gone into looking at the underlying critical elements that should go into into um into a model i mean i was part of you know what part of the, the individuals that used the term non-negotiables and it was supposed to be a softer term it was taken quite hard you know um i think mike's benchmarks and blueprints is probably the same thing taken it, it's made as it has to be adaptable to the local context but it, it's been taken to me and I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth Mike but the ways that I interpret it is it's a hard fast thing it has to happen and, and I think we need to move away from that I also think ideas like watered down and cafeteria haven't you know haven't served us well 
in looking at the, the local adaptation that can occur and should occur in every school. So, you know, we use these terms with all the best intentions and they can end up being quite restrictive to us. Model fidelity is something that's been kind of thrown back at me a little bit in terms of, well, you know, do teachers have to do everything? And the answer is no, but researchers have to articulate what they've done. If we're to understand what comes out of the model that we need to show what we did so we can, we can make the connections. So to me, a teacher who goes in to do sport education and, and, and just starts with seasons is a, is a start. It's an aspiration for going forward. Now they may stop there. They may stop there for very many reasons. But hopefully over time, and it takes a huge amount of time to become pedagogically fluent in a model to be able to think in, in the terms of the language of the model and to use it. And this thing that we're talking about, you know, years, you know, you know, to really be able to just literally plan quite simply and, and go in and, and, and use the kind of the um, the pedagogies that are associated with these models. And they are different, different ways of, of teaching, learning, um, of developing the curriculum and, and of assessing. Um, and it takes a huge amount of time. So we need to stop beating ourselves up. We need to stop, you know, beating down on teachers who don't you know, you know, hit every single criteria and do everything they need because there's nothing worse than being evaluated on your use of it and being told you're not doing it properly because this is a slight side story. I remember the first paper I wrote as a teacher, it was for JTPE and it got hammered in review. I mean, it was rejected without even a sight of getting anywhere near the journal. It was 2006, I think. And I didn't mind the review, but when the reviewer told me from three and a half thousand miles away that I was teaching wrong, then I basically, well, in the UK, I'd say I'd stuck two fingers up at them. So for those of you who know what that means, then that's fine. But I was, I was rude in my head because I say, you can teach me how to write. You can tell me how to do all the things, but do not sit in your ivory tower and tell me how to teach. And I think we need to be careful that we're not telling. So to me, there is no such thing as sport education. There is a, there is a way of teaching around the sport education model that allows us to achieve certain things. But what Carla did with you know, Brazilian youth in, 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 um, not, yeah, was very different to what I did in, in leafy, leafy, I would say sunny, um, Yorkshire. You know, these are different, same approach, same ideas, very different. And then we need to be able to bear in mind how these things work in those contexts. We need to move away from proper nouns towards aspirations and verbs. And verbs is, again, it's just an, an analogy, but it's an action and it's an aspiration and it's hope. Yeah, and maybe this is a, a good transition. Thanks for addressing that. Um, is how do models work within a student-centered pedagogy or is that a model in itself and you know speaking of the activist approach i know carla's on the phone oscar's on the phone david you've uh, written a book about the activist approach and i um you know how does how does that mod or is that a model how does that model work and um in student-centered pedagogy when you can't really have these rigid structures like we've seen before in a tactical games approach that has specific things or sport education that has specific things so um, if anybody wants to speak up or give their opinion on a student-centered pedagogy or and an activist approach, I'd love to hear any opinions on that. Thanks, Risto. Um, I think, uh, you know, this whole idea of modeling, practicing as a verb, I think it is, I, I love reading the paper and seeing how 
we have different ways to qualify what is a pedagogical model. I think we, in our area, we value a lot static models in some sense. Uh, so, for example, we talk a lot about fidelity more than, you know, the messiness, transformation, identity. So, and that's something that happens particularly with me. So, in the beginning, I was calling my line of research as a pedagogical model. And I start talking about an approach because I was not fighting with this model idea because what I understood it is most of the academics, they see model in a static way. So when we talk about critical elements, people are like trying to understand much more fidelity than how these critical elements would look like in a specific context. So I think if we, you know, open our minds in understanding model in, in, in a more broad perspective, we can include uh, perspectives as student centers. So bottle-up approaches where we listen and respond to young peoples and we co-create those critical elements with them in some sense. So it, I think flexibility is something we should be discussing when we talk about pedagogical models and being from like a critical pedagogy background I was always in this conflict with the word model and what the area think about model that's why I'm calling what my line of research approach but I would love to be included in, in this model body of research but that's just to show you the tensions I think, I don't know why we have calling some practice as models, sometimes without a theoretical framework as clear as it could be, and other practices that I think they are more organized, but they are not as uh, controlling as the other ones we see not as a model. So I think we should be open to other types of models that would appear. That's my perspective. Carla, I think you just spoke to me on a different level. That was brilliant. Um, it's like exactly how I feel. To, to kind of go back, I think the reason we have the term models may be linked to Bain and Jewett, I'm not sure. But I, I think like why the term pedagogical models is used or the or whatever term we use approach model I think it's important um, but I want to bring this back to why they materialized in the first place to shift away from the previous practices right the previous practices the reason why they were being critiqued was because they were not theoretically informed by educational theories or any theory for that matter other than you know uh, Let's just come on here and do skills in a lot of cases. So by infusing educational theory into these things, it shifts practice from, you know, the repetitive things to more meaningful. So when I think about this, I think about the pedagogy wasn't really theoretically in depth. I think about um, David's uh, per, uh, in two, 2010 uh, Futures book, how our PEAT programs can't prepare as in-depth teachers to critique those pedagogies 
So then they become sort of cyclical over time. So what do models do? They kind of act as theoretical frameworks like they do with our research. We may want to call them non-negotiables. In theory, we call them concepts. And we apply them to curriculum, to pedagogy in different ways. The issue is, is when the application of it then becomes something where it's sort of repeat the same thing over and over again, because that's not the point of a social theory, right? It's to see the world in a different way and to open it up in different ways, to create new, as Carla just said, approaches. So I guess where I have been really pushing back on the idea and why the term models in the US may be different is things where you have the off the shelf curriculums where every little thing is scripted for teachers to do and there's no autonomy and there's no agency. That's not just merely an application of a concept to create a new approach, a pedagogy of love, a critical approach, a cooperative approach. Now we're moving towards this is the way to teach or that wonderful JTPE reviewer that pissed Ash off. Go ahead, David. Risto, I'm, I'm aware that, that we've moved away from your question that prompted Carla uh, about student-centered pedagogy, and, and I don't want to lose that because I think it's a really important point. But I'm, I'm, I'm just intrigued with the, this, the, this conversation as it's unfolded here. And I think it's worth pointing out that the way in which we've been using this notion of models is a kind of bridge between theory and practice, prescription and teacher agency. Because we accept that there is a, an iron law of curriculum innovation, that the innovative idea will always and inevitably be transformed in the, in the act or moment of implementation. And, and if you accept that as a, as a, as a fact, and I'm, I'm challenging you all to think of a counterexample to that iron law, if that's a fact, then teachers are squarely in the game in terms of using anything that, that researchers might produce at any point in time. Because the minute that they meet this idea, whether it be sport education or working with socially vulnerable youth or whatever, they've got to make sense of it in terms of their own biography of experience. Once they've got that understanding, they then take it back to their school or their context in which they work. And they've got to make sense of it in relation to their kids, to their uh, cultures, to their traditions, to, to their institutional imperatives. Um, and then if we take the French tradition of, of didactique, there's another moment uh, where there's a co-construction happens when teachers and kids meet, when teachers and learners meet, and, and there's negotiations going on. So what the messiness that Carla's talking about is, is, it, is a fact, it's there. But I think models help us accommodate this because what they are is their design specifications for practice. They're not programs in themselves. They're not nouns, as Ash is saying. They're design specs. And sport education will indeed look different in different contexts. It couldn't be otherwise. And Dylan's point is really important too, that if you're teaching the same sport education now and then 10 years from now, you're not paying attention. <laughs> You know, you've got different kids coming through, different conditions in which you're teaching. So really, really nice uh, transcript um, way that the conversation went there. Um, but I, I, I don't think that model in itself is a problematic concept if you understand it in this sense of being a design specification. Ash, I saw your hand go up. Did you want to comment on that? I did, but I've now forgotten what I was going to say, particularly around that bit. So I'm going to, I actually had a different point is that 
when I when I was writing with uh, originally with Mikhail and, and Hawkan, then the, the, the Swedish in that case don't really get models because it's not really in their vocabulary. And I'm going to drop them in it now, but I've seen that Max and um, uh, um, who else did I see on here? Sorry. Oh, well, Max, I'll start with at the moment. Um, oh, Lars Bjorke is also was also on here as well. So, you know, they're right. They're they're involved in bringing models to Scandinavia and and uh, Norway in this case. And I'm very and and, and Carla's already talked from a kind of a. Uh, an English, Brazilian, um, Australian uh, <laughs> context, but I'd be really interested to see how other people are are doing this from in other ways because we're talking quite Westernized at the moment, and I'm not saying that Norway is not in the West. Sorry, I would say that very quickly, but there's certainly a very difficult construct around physical education and how models are taken on board in that context. Lars or Matt, sorry. <laughs> I can say something from a Norwegian perspective, Ash. Uh, thanks. Um, well, I um, I totally agree with the the complexity of, of uh, implementing models based practice and using models based practice. Uh, but from a Norwegian per perspective, we we can see that it's possible to use models based practice uh, in schools. The teachers have um, quite a lot of autonomy. Uh, so they are actually able to implement models practice. We're, I'm now working with one one teacher. I think he's uh, he's joining this uh, this chat, and we're, I'm working with him over a three-year project, and he's implementing models based practice. Um, and what we see is that uh, models based practice are aligned with the curriculum and also the new curriculum that's coming to be implemented next year. And we can see that. Um, the, the students are um, are learning more than uh, than before, or <laughs> they're experiencing that they're learning are more in depth than uh, than before, and that's uh, that's interesting, I think. Um, but also um, going back to the discussion about critical elements and fidelity, I think it's important. I'm I'm a huge um, um, I think it's important to uh, acknowledge the complexity, but I also think it's important for teachers to be able to learn uh, to use models and to see the difference between different models. I think it's important that they learn about the critical elements also, and then are able to use those uh, elements in their own context to see the main theme of the model and to see the learning aspiration and the critical elements, and then play with the model in their own context. Thanks, Mats. And, and I love that you brought out a little bit more of a wider international perspective on this. And uh, a teacher educator in uh, dual language at Mason uh, forwarded me an article about how uh, in Vietnam, there was a teacher that was trying to implement um, cooperative learning, and it didn't work. And they went down and you know, really examined why it wasn't working and they realized that there's so many, you know, Western-based values embedded in that model and they just tried to adapt it into a different setting without really taking in the culture of that, uh, of that you know, country, of that school into consideration. So I think it's interesting to hear that Norwegian point of view. I know we have some, um, you know, 
other international countries represented on the call. And I, I tried to get a bunch of people from Spain and Portugal because I always see these articles coming out from there and JTPE about models. But if anybody else wants to speak up on more of that international um, viewpoint, um, I'd, I'd love to hear it. I know that Javier Fernandez Rio is on here somewhere. So, yeah, and I think it just misses me that he had had to uh, leave early. So, so you know, how how does how do these models work? We talked about student-centered pedagogy in the activist uh, framework. Uh, I know Jen Walton Facet is on here. Um, others of you have worked in social justice research and um and gender equality and race and racism and i'm just curious how these again looking at the old school model not what we've just talked about with ashes uh, and others papers that have re-envisioned models how does social justice fit in how does how do these models that in how we probably taught our peach students for years and years and years um that are structured how does that fit in the diverse climate now and maybe sue jen um whoever dylan whoever wants to uh, uh speak on that sure so i'll speak a little bit about it and i think that some points that have already been made from carla and some others about the co-constructing and focusing on the students the young people that we're working with the context all those things matter and for so long model space practice has been a one-size-fit-all so here we're checking off the boxes, you know, game practice game, appropriate Q&A, but not considering the people in which that we're actually teaching. Um, and so regardless of social identities that hasn't even been talked or discussed, um, you know, within these frameworks, um, you've been taking like sport education, for example, and it's wonderful that everybody gets to pick their team role and they have a responsibility, but we all know that what ends up happening, those that are um, higher skilled end up becoming the coaches and those that don't enjoy PE so much are the equipment managers, or athletic trainers, and what is the power positioning within those roles and responsibilities? Do we teach our PE students about that, about considering how power differential is, is there? So we have a lot of questioning to do within models so that it's not a one-size-fit-all, so that it can consider social identities, consider social inequities that are present within PE programs and spaces. So at that point, I'll, I'll turn it over to somebody else that can add to it. Yeah, I'm gonna piggyback off you there, Jen. Um, so I wanna go back to sort of the analogy that I gave before as models acting as certain theoretical frameworks that can inform pedagogical practices. And as David showed, because those theory, theoretical frameworks, those principles, whatever you wanna call them, interact with teachers differently, interact with students differently, they manifest differently, calling what Ash calls it as a verb or a carré, as a, a, a Piner would say. I know I always say that wrong, which is why, you know, Carla calls it an approach more. But let's look back here. There's certain theoretical frameworks that inform certain pedagogical practices. If the theoretical framework is not aimed at addressing social justice issues or sociocultural issues, then the pedagogies that are going to manifest under that framework are not going to address those issues as well. So what this really does mean is we have to examine what models are and are not addressing these things, why, theoretically speaking, 
and then what can we do to alter them in order so they can address those things? The other option is to do what others have done in the field, like Carla, like David, like Kim, and like um, uh, Joy Butler with the fair play approach, is develop models that specifically address these things because they're using theoretical orientations that do that. Now, which models get taken up in places? Usually ones that don't address these things because you know, most of the people who are in PEAT programs look like me, uh, white, male, decent at sport, um, unlike me in that they're straight most of the time. So they tend to navigate or they tend to resonate with models that don't address those things. So what's being picked up is different than what's actually been on offer. But again, looking back at the theoretical frames, looking back at those things that underpin it in order to alter them to meet particular needs. If I could quickly add, just and I think that what Dylan's mentioning really relates to, again, what Dr. Kirk mentions, it's about conditions and models allow the flexibility to, to adapt to the situation if, if you think about it from that context. And I think Dylan referenced in, in his writing about the standardization, we have to avoid the standardization of models and understand that the models need to be flexible and be able to consider, as Dr. Kirk mentions, conditions and the culture. And if we can go use the models from that context, I, can, I think we can be successful in any of the models that we choose to employ. The only thing is it's not gonna happen through osmosis. So it has to be intentional. And so I would argue if anything about social justice or equity is going to occur within models, approaches, whatever it may be, it has to be overt and it has to be intentional. Just providing flexibility or even understanding the context in which this is occurring in the time and space, that does not make it equitable or socially just. It has to be intentional. It has to be part of the planning, the instruction, the criticality of it all. I would just like to add that point. Thanks, Jen. Go ahead, Dave. So in the, the book that Bristol mentioned, uh, Precarity, Critical Pedagogy um, and Physical Education, um, my three choices for excellent examples of critical pedagogies uh, for, that were social justice pedagogies were TPSR, various versions of sport education like Sport for Peace, and um, Kim Oliver and many others, developments of her activist approach, um, including Jen's and, and, and Carla's. Um, you know, where, and, and the interesting thing, I think when I sent Kim the passage that, where I'd gone through all of her work and built up this argument that this was really a critical pedagogy, um, you know, I was expecting to be, um, you know, shouted down. Um, because she's never called her work that, and neither did Don Ellison. But this is what they are, if you look very, very closely at them. And they've got particular features. And I think that intentionality is absolutely crucial. Um, that it's the way you treat people, it's the way you interact with them, within the framework of the model. And so I don't think there's anything about models in particular that cannot be adapted to social justice purposes. It's how you go about the use of them. And this brings us back again to Ash's point that we're talking about verbs here. Um, I just noticed a comment from our colleague in Korea um, about, you know, students work hard to master these models. And again, I, I come back to the point that the benchmarks, the blueprints, the critical elements, whatever you call them, 
are crucial because they're part of what Ash and I have been working on, the practice architecture of models. What is it that makes them distinctive? What is it that makes them, in a sense, unique? Um, so that shape still has to be there or else we end up with a mush, you know? And we don't help teachers um, because we don't give them any kind of guidance at all. But these are, as I said before, design specifications. They're there to be adapted to suit local contexts, local conditions. I mean, I've used models in my teaching for years. Um, I didn't realize until recently that I'd been kind of doing cooperative learning wrong. Um, so I kind of realized that would I ever stop a lesson? So imagine you've got the, the in-game learning going on. Would I ever stop a lesson because I saw a really good example of cooperation? And I wanted to point it out to everyone and say that that's really good. Probably until about a year ago, no. Would I have stopped it for a really good passage of play to show a good skill? Then yeah, I think I would. And I think to come back to Jen's point, we need to think about what we value and what we're picking out. You know, would I now look for a, you know, for a, a, you know, an incident in my teaching where there was a really good, you know, bit of, of inclusion or a really good bit of quality? Yeah, I think I would. But it takes time to get beyond that whole drive of being focused on performance, even when you, are, you know, you buy into and adopt these approaches. So I think we need to be very, so Jen said we need to be very overt and very obvious about these. Well, we need to in the way that we teach. So if I'm teaching models, I'm trying to pick out examples of good practice that isn't just good performance. And I think that then signposts to other people what they can do. I think it's really important. So in cooperative learning, if I see promotive, you know, face-to-face -face interaction, I want to point it out and say, this is a good thing and this is what it might look like. But that's a big step away from where I was in terms, even as a teacher educator who'd used cooperative learning for 10 years. So, you know, these are processes that take time to become fluent in. And sometimes we learn new words and we, we learn new phrases and, and we find out new ways of saying things. And we need to be overt about those. And we need to celebrate them. So I think you can use TPSR for social justice, but not if your focus is, is in a different direction. So I think we need to be focusing on the things that we value. It'll okay if I jump in real quick. Go ahead, Ray. Uh, so let me see if I can. So this has been a very fascinating conversation. Um, a lot of great points by, made by all. So yeah, going back again to the in-service teacher and the role that the in-service teacher plays within this, this topic of conversation about particular models, um, just knowing your students. And if a teacher has been teaching for 20 years in an environment and in a space and they have relations. So if we think about the relationships that a teacher has with the student, with the student's community, with the support systems in that environment, then the design specifications, as David mentioned, will be well set up for that in-service teacher to, and, and then how do we get that in-service teacher maybe to collaborate and partner with the university or a researcher and, and, and kind of elucidate this particular way of teaching or this way of learning in an environment that we perhaps may call a model. And I, I just, I've had success with that just in terms of the, the individuals I've worked with and being able to know who they are and know what they are able to respond to so that's just where I really wanted to take it. Thanks, Ray. Anybody you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. It is important. We need, we need to forget. So the professional development opportunities that we offer to um, in-service teachers are really, really important. Um, but we need to make it accessible um, 
and we need to make it interesting. So we need to write to full professional audiences. Um, you know, I, I'm working with Routledge on the moment on a new book series. It's not a plug for the series, but the idea is it's practice, praxis based. So we're having conversations about, you know, these, these issues in language that is, is, is accessible. Um, and, and I think that's really important, whether it's through social media, through conferences, which are, you know, at the moment not possible, but they're online. So how can we share practice? How can we help people? What are the little gains? You know, what are the weekly gains that people can make in order to, to, to move forward into these spaces? And, and how can they advocate? We come back to David's point. How can they advocate for different pedagogies in their, in their schools, in their districts, in, in, in their countries? And, and you know how can we how can we how can we support them as researchers but how can we enable them to do that i know david set, setting up a group in scotland at the moment for practitioners who are interested in in being involved in models-based practice and that takes a huge amount of effort but that's the sort of thing that allows you know development to occur on a on a, on a bigger scale uh, and it's supporting those te to teachers in that that sort of development I think that's a key point, Ash, actually, and, and thanks, Ray, for the, the, the comment you've made. I think that too often we think about teachers working in isolation. Um, and Ash is a really nice example, and there's plenty of others who have been involved with um, all, all sorts of weird and wonderful social media that I don't use, um, but uh, who, who've got together. And I think the idea of teachers forming hubs, forming networks, um, who uh, interact with local uh, colleagues, but also people in other, other countries and other places, absolutely all within our grasp, all within our power to, to do this. And so, you know, something that I think is really, really valuable and worth encouraging. Yeah. And so I've asked a lot of questions during this time. Um, is there anybody out there that has a question about models that this would be a very convenient time for you to ask that question? Because there's a lot of people who research and write about this topic on the call. Um, so if there's anybody that wants to throw out a question or ask a question that might push your thinking forward or things that you want to kind of throw it out to a sounding board, um, I'll open it up to anybody that has some, you know, no one's willing to put out their thoughts. They want to write them down on a piece of paper and then submit it to a journal and then have everybody read their thoughts later. I guess the question I always have is where to next? And I don't want to steal anyone else's next paper or whatever, but you know, what do we need to do as people who write about models? What do we need to do next? You know, that's a challenge to me. That's a challenge to everybody in this space. But you know, what is the next question? Or do we still stuck on the, 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 not stuck on the same questions? That's, that's not the right thing, but you know, what what is the next question to ask? What is the next pedagogical model to develop? What is the next practice to change? No one wants to give their research questions away either. I want to keep those. Can I, can I can I jump in on that, Ash? Yeah, go ahead, Ray. Yeah, so I'm, I just want to go back to to ask to kind of answer your question. Hopefully, Ash. Um, I just think we need to ask. I mean, I think many of you have mentioned it previously in terms of from a, uh, it's tough to really, if you think from a policy level, I mean, here in the United States, right? If you think from a policy level and how do we, how do we create 
valuable change within the framework or with the, within the structure that we are being asked to, you know, prepare teachers or that we are being asked to teach in. So really, you know, what can we do? We can ask, again, I, I mean, I like to use the term our institutional partners if we're not in a particular school district or a, a school per se, you know, we, what do schools, what do they need? And, and what do districts need? And if we can identify what these districts need, uh, perhaps um, we can help them through our expertise, through our experience to design and develop uh, effective, I don't want to, I mean, really an effective model that speaks to their particular district um, culture and their district context, you know, what's going on in their districts within the parameters I know in the United States, we have LEAs, which are local educational agencies, and they do a lot of the planning. So if we can work with districts, each district may be able to have a model that fits their framework in terms of time, how they allocate professional development for their teachers, and how they structure the school day to incorporate uh, our content area within a interdisciplinary or inter um, across, across disciplinary way so maybe we can just partner with districts and ask those questions and then help take part in that development thanks ray other other future directions that you see the next questions i think gavin's off but mike you're uh you're writing a book on this stuff what are you what are you seeing david ash uh no excuse me well if i could answer the previous question and i'm going to refer to emily who i think has uh uh, a, a great idea, and that is to uh, put together groups, learning communities, if you will, of researchers, teachers, students, administrators, and uh, develop exemplars of a model. What what is whatever the model is, and in whatever context it is being uh, implemented, what's the best way to make it work? in that setting. Uh, and, and so this is really action research. Um, and the, uh, the development of enough exemplars will, will help everyone in uh, verifying that the models do work well or not in certain contexts. And uh, um, Uh, allow that message to come from teachers and researchers together, not just written up in JPTPE for other professors. Go ahead, David. Thanks. I absolutely agree, Mike. I, I think that where the action needs to be is in, in the local context. Mm -hmm. That is, but, and, and, and it's, it's what we can do to support people who are working in the local context, that's the, that's the crucial issue. Um, you know, so you can theorize as much as you like, you can make as much policy as you like, but it's what happens on the ground that's the, yes. that's the important thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, I think the future directions, I said before, we, we've been asking kind of the wrong questions, or at least we need to sort of shift the questions that we're asking. And I think the questions are around, how do we provide evidence that helps that empowers teachers in local context to persuade their school leaders, their school communities, their stakeholders, 
um, their students um, that there are better ways to do things than maybe they have been able to up to that point. Right, exactly. And uh, to uh, compliment Javin uh, again, uh, I, I put a, a note in the chat that right now, Javin uh, and I are uh, about ready to submit the fourth edition of the models book for uh, release. And the reason I asked Javin, among others, to co-author that edition with me is because he has been developing exemplars with his graduate students for many, many years. And, and so he's not only teaching the models, is using the models and then using that knowledge to deepen his understanding for the next cohort of teachers who come through their program. So even though he's doing it remotely, he really in a way does have a, a, a handle of the local context in which these models are being implemented. And um, to me, that is a perfectly valid way to develop exemplars. Thanks, Mike. Uh, go ahead, Clancy. Just real quickly, uh, and, and you know, Mike and David's point, think about how um, fruitful a rich set of exemplars would be during this particular, circum particular circumstances, or again, to borrow Dr. Kirk, precarious circumstances we're in right now uh, with with the pandemic and having to think about teacher education from a virtual context or from a, an alternative model context, think about what a, a rich set of exemplars would do and help uh, for our teacher education programs. Thanks, Clancy. Um, I think, you know, I, I think this is a good time to kind of wrap up. Otherwise, I mean, we could probably be here for another hour having this conversation, but um, I, I really appreciate everybody that uh, came on, whether you were putting stuff in the chat or uh, speaking up or giving commentary. Um, I would love to do this again. Um, I'm not sure if it's a follow-up conversation on model space practice or it's a, a totally different topic, um, but this is something that I miss, having these conversations while sitting somewhere at a conference in person and pushing this conversation forward. And I think with us not traveling, not going to conferences in person. I think this is a good alternative. At least I have enjoyed my, my time here. Um, so if you have a topic, maybe this is a once every two month conversation, once a month, I think the timing works out with, you know, the West Coast of the US, the East Coast of the US, England, um, the rest of Europe uh, that, you know, um, fits in South America is in a reasonable time zone. I think the only people that we're excluding here is New Zealand and Australia because they'd have to get up at 3 a.m. to have this conversation. Um, but, you know, if you have ideas of things to bring up in future conversations, let me know. Um, if you didn't get a specific email from me, just drop me an email that I'll, I'll put up a list of people that want to have these conversations and I'll send you out another um, another email and if you've been paying attention to the chat and halfway in I'll post this audio on after I edit it through to uh, wait for the silences after I ask questions um, I'll edit those out so it'll be easier listening um, and so if you have any other comments I'm happy to chat but um, otherwise shoot me an email if you did not get an email with a link for this so I can collect uh, collect that and if you have ideas of what 
are important topics about research or about our field that should be uh, had in this larger forum, I'd, I'd happy to uh, entertain those. Thanks everybody.